The Guardian. Would you like to unlock the secrets of great science writing? Science writers actually have to find a way of converting very complex ideas into something the rest of the world can understand. Well, the great science writer Tim Radford can help you do just that. I'll tell you more after the podcast. Hello and welcome to Media Talk, coming to you this week from the radio festival in Salford. On the show... In light of the fact that the Director-General is also the Editor-in-Chief and ultimately responsible for all content, I have decided that the honourable thing to do is to step down from the post of Director-General. It's goodbye George Entwistle after just 54 days in the job. We speak to Radio 2 controller Bob Shannon about the controversy. Plus... Billy Bragg and Pete Waterman mourn the loss of local radio. Did Global kill the local radio star? And we'll round up the best of the chatter from the festival floor. This is Media Talk from The Guardian. So, the story so far. On Friday, the BBC apologises for its erroneous Lord McAlpine report on Newsnight. On Saturday, Director-General George Entwistle makes a disastrous appearance on Radio 4's Today. It's so disastrous that 12 hours later, he's outside Broadcasting House announcing his resignation. On Sunday, BBC Trust Chairman Lord Patton promises to get things right. But on Monday, it emerges that Entwistle has been given a £450,000 payoff, twice what he was contractually obliged to. And Acting Director General Tim Davey is telling everyone who will listen he's getting a grip. But he doesn't make the best impression when he walks off an interview on Sky News. The BBC is taking action. That's what we're going to do. I've got a job and I'm going to get on with it. Thank you, Dermot. Well, are more heads going to roll, Mr Davey? Thank you. Well, there we are, uh, Tim Davey, uh, ending his uh, interview there with uh, Sky News. Bet he wouldn't do that to the BBC. And so to Salford, where the shadow of the BBC crisis hung heavy over the radio festival. Tim Davey was due to deliver the keynote speech, but for rather obvious reasons, he was replaced at the last minute by Radio 2's Bob Shannon. We're just expected to do our jobs as leaders. As controller of Radio 2 Six Music and the Asian Network, I've got heads of department and editors and producers and APs who are making great content and audiences love what they do, and I'm expecting them to continue to do that with all the same checks and balances that they've always used. And that's what they're doing. And I think the really, really important thing for all of us in the BBC is to remember that Our audience loves our content, they love our stations, our channels, our programmes. We need to make that great, and that's why they keep coming to us and believing in the BBC. Bob Shannon, speaking to Media Talk after his festival appearance on Monday. With me in the lobby of the Larry Theatre, home of the Radio Festival, is Paul Robinson, all-round media consultant and Media Talk regular, and Moz D, programme director of Talk Sport. Paul, what have you made of the events of the last few days? I hesitate to say weeks because so much has gone on. Well, I've hardly slept. It's been an extraordinary weekend, hasn't it? I mean, the BBC uh, does have this ability to have crises now and again, but this must be the biggest one in, in living memory. Uh, you know, DG resigning on Saturday night, the chairman of the DG outside New Broadcasting House in the rain, you know, explaining how it's all come to a horrible end. Uh, extraordinary. And then, of course, since we've had Tim Davey now appointed as the, the acting DG, appearing on Sky News and appearing not to know he can't walk out of the interview halfway through, and all the discussion about runners and riders and 
fascinatingly listening to the BBC, of course. The BBC is discussing this ad nauseum on Five Live. You can barely not hear about the BBC. But what's really interesting, I think, is how the consumers, the public, are not so concerned about failures of journalism. You could argue this is about one report that ran on Newsnight and one that shouldn't have run. Uh, but actually what they're concerned about is the DG's payoff, the £500,000 almost payoff. They're saying that is uh, excessive and I'm not going to pay my licence fee. And that is really bad news for the BBC because the BBC has to keep true to the licence fee payer. And if people are saying, I don't want to pay my licence fee because of payoff, that's a big issue. Um, Mars, as Paul mentioned there, this isn't a crisis that ended with uh, Entwistle's resignation on, uh, late on Saturday night. In fact, it's, it's, it's carried on. It's continued to snowball since then. It has. And here we are in the Lowry Centre in Salford at the sort of the, the radio festival. Um, and clearly, well, both Paul and I, former employees of the BBC, running into former colleagues at every turn. And it, it's palpable, isn't it? You, you, see, you see former I'm compelled to hug them. Because physically, you can see that this has really shaken people. And, and, and talking and chatting to people uh, last night, talking about the programming meetings that they're having, um, morale has to be at an all-time low um, within, these, uh, within the various departments and crooks and crannies of the British Broadcasting Corporation. There is a human side to this. We've got to remember there are a lot of really, really good people at the BBC making good product, good programming, good content, day in, day out. And, and whilst the consequences are huge, sort of with Paul, it's a relatively small element um, that has created this, this, this tidal wave uh, that we're witnessing, notwithstanding the very serious nature of some of the discussions and, and, and the issues surrounding abuse of young people on BBC premises and the Savile scenario, all of which very, very serious questions. But that was, um, that was in the past, and what you've got a lot of people now suffering worrying about how the BBC, how they move forward and how they continue to make the great content that the BBC is known for. Paul, uh, Tim Davey was supposed to give the, uh, the keynote speech on the opening day of the festival Monday. Of course he didn't for, for, for obvious reasons, but um, we have heard from some BBC executives. Bob Shannon took Tim Davey's place and we also heard from Adrian Van Claveren yesterday, who's the, the Five Live controller, who is, uh, who, who is part of this scandal because he was seconded over to BBC News to oversee all Savile-related output and uh, issues relating to, to child abuse. And he is now the, the subject of one of the inquiries. Well, it's extraordinary. You've got Helen Bowden, the head of news, and Steve Mitchell, the deputy head of news, who've both been moved sideways, which is an extraordinary thing. So Adrian himself now is clearly going to be part of that uh, that discussion. And, you know, I feel very sorry for Adrian. He's a fantastic executive. I mean, it's hard to know, you know, what the clear lines are now. And I think one of the issues of the BBC now is, is re-establishing clear lines. Because the reality is, for all of this froth, the BBC is still a great organisation. It still makes great programmes. It's stuffed full of talented people. And it's got a lot of very talented managers in there too. But it needs clarity about who does what and who's responsible for what. And I think that is actually probably made worse by this crisis with all these senior people being moved aside. Remember too, the acting head of radio um, is, you know, is an acting head of radio because Tim Davey is obviously moving to BBC Worldwide, except he's not. He's now acting DG. The head of TV is also acting. Uh, the head of BBC Worldwide is retiring, John Smith. So there's a lot of acting people all over the place. You mentioned the acting head of radio there. That's a chap called Graham Ellis. Graham Ellis, yes, who's um, head of production. Interesting that he didn't do the uh, speech uh, standing in for Tim Davey, but in fact it was done very, very well by Bob Shannon. So, you know, Bob clearly uh, must be a very, very strong candidate for uh, head of audio and music. Well, question for both of you. I mean, who, who should be the next DG and, 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 well, lower down the food chain, who do you think, who are the runners and riders to be the next head of audio and music replacing Tim Davey? Well, I think, you know, just going back on um, some, you know, what Paul was discussing there earlier on, I think, again, talking to former colleagues, out of this mess, out of this carnage, um, 
perhaps there is some positives to be had, um, i.e. simplification of the whole communication system, the whole command structure to the BBC. And I think that's something that would be welcomed, actually, by a lot of people working within. Um, we talk about a director general. I was talking to a lot and canvassing people last night. I think a lot of people like to see George Entwistle as the last director general of the BBC. Even the language, even the term is something that's rather archaic. And that job is such a, a huge job encompassing so many different areas of editorial, of brand strategy and structure, that perhaps we will see that breakup that many people are alluding to, and I'm sure Paul will add to this, where you might have a chief executive of the BBC, and under that chief executive, somebody who is an editor-in-chief or um, a director of television, etc., reporting into this, uh, into this executive. Well, I mean, a couple of things. First thing, very interesting. Um, Tim Davey, um, currently acting DG, former brand manager at P&G, head of the radio centre, Andrew Harrison, former brand manager at P&G, uh, Jeremy Darrow, the head of B Sky B, former brand manager at P&G, and John Hardy, the chief exec of ITN, former brand manager at P&G. So you're suggesting fabulous, there's a pattern emerging. You've got a fabulous four now, of which um, uh, Tim Davey is one. I mean, seriously, I think that Moz makes an interesting point. Um, what is um, perhaps maybe uh, interesting to point out is that when the role of deputy DG was uh, abolished for uh, financial grounds maybe that wasn't such a good idea I mean Michael Checklin was an accountant he had John Burt as his editorial number two behind him uh, Mark Thompson had Mark Byford for a long time who, who was, was the, the head guy, of journalism Paul, who it? was the head of journalism and he was the guy who could check things I mean let's not forget the BBC is a very large complex organisation George Entwistle lost his job because he wasn't across everything it's impossible for one person to be across everything what you do need though is someone who says hey this is important. You need to take note of this. You need to take account of this and maybe just check this out. And there's no one to do that. So I think what matters here is not necessarily restructuring the BBC in the way Moz describes, because actually that requires the charter to be changed. And it's obviously very important to get a quick resolution of this. But maybe the person who is appointed as DG does need, as you say, a second in command who's clearly a deputy, who's going to be the eyes and ears and is the editorial guidance. So if Tim Davey were to be successful, for example, and I think it's his to lose now, uh, maybe he needs an old hand, you know, like a, a Stuart Purvis or someone like that as his, his number two to look after the editorial side. And Ofcom Chief Executive Ed Richards is today, uh, as of Tuesday, uh, the bookie's favourite for the job. I mean, the fact they want to make an appointment within weeks rather than months suggests they're not going to look beyond the people they canvassed uh, first time round, Moss. Yeah, well, Car I think Carolyn is probably out of it. Carolyn Thompson is out of it. She left with Roger Bad Grace, so I think she's not a runner and rider. Um, Helen Bowden was a candidate. I think Helen is probably not there now. Um, people like Peter Fincham have been mentioned from ITV, David Abrams, but I think that's probably too much of a stretch and it's going to take too long. So Ed Richards is definitely a potential. I am still going to put my money though on Tim Davey. Tim Davey is a very competent manager. He will grip this up. He'll see the opportunity. He's got to get the structure in right. If he gets it right, I think also Chris Patton will survive. Um, if he gets it wrong, uh, I think Chris Patton's job is also going to change. And if it was Tim Davey there, that would have to be along the sort of reorganisation that, that Moz mentioned earlier with an editor-in-chief, maybe someone like Peter Horrocks. Peter Horrocks would be great. I mean, I think you can still keep the DG as a DG, and I think it's very important he's a DG, not a CEO, because the BBC needs to be a non-commercial organisation. It's not... You know, I know, I use the term CEO, Paul, sure. but, it, but, but I, I think, again, I make a serious point. I'm not sure how far we'd have to restructure the charter, but the very language of the BBC is actually goes right back to, to, to Lord Reith, Director General, Controllers, um, you know 
commissioners, etc. Um, and I think that we need to sort of rethink the language, the way we, the BBC communicates with the public, communicates with the licence fee pay, because many of the licence fee pay are looking in on this organisation, thinking this is, this is something that's crumbling and falling apart. No, we're saying the same thing. I mean, the point is, editor-in-chief yeah. is actually enshrined in the licence, in the charter, yes. and that would need to be you'd changed. Need, need but one, but yeah. we're saying the same thing. You, you need to make sure this yeah. is actually gripped up quickly to get confidence back, because the BBC is a great organisation of that, there's no doubt. And the £450,000 payoff, which is concentrating minds certainly at the start of the week, uh, it had the feeling of another sort of dramatic own goal. It didn't have to happen. But when Patton explained why they made the payout, they said, well, if he hadn't resigned, we were going to discuss firing him, which kind of, it wasn't, didn't feel entirely what Patton was saying on, on Saturday night when Imbissel announced he was resigning. I mean, George was clearly told, you know, you are going. I mean, it wasn't, it wasn't a voluntary uh, resignation. He was told, you know, you can resign, we can do it with dignity, and in return you're going to get 12 months because contractually he had six months. This is not uncommon in, in San Francisco. Absolutely, and in no. all sorts of businesses, this yeah. type of compromise agreement, indeed there's a term for it, legal to compromise agreement, exists, and right. I think Paul's absolutely right. It wasn't a decision that, that George, I think, came to, it was something that was discussed and he was persuaded and in return he was given this severance package. Right. I feel very sorry for, for George Entwistle because one, you have to recognise it might seem and sound like a large sum of money um, but actually he's allowed the BBC to move on in a way that could have got very ugly otherwise and, and one has to ask the question for, for, for George is where does he go next? Yeah, I mean, I think you, I agree with all of that. I think the trouble is, though, that for the public to see nearly half a million pounds of licence fee money go for someone who was in a job for two months and someone who failed seems to be rewarding failure. And it is a lot of money. So I think it would have been better to have gone with a smaller amount of money. But, you know, the genie's out of the bottle now. I mean, the danger is this is when people start to say, well, you know, if he's going to get that sort of cash, I don't want to pay my licence fee anymore. And that is when, the, when the, you know, that, that is the real issue for the BBC. Exactly. I mean, the there's that issue. There's also, of course, the National Audit Office and the BBC have always been very keen to ensure the National Audit Office did not get access to the BBC's books, so it had freedom to operate as it saw fit. The National Audit Office are asking questions, the government of the day are asking questions. It makes it all very uncomfortable for the BBC. Well, Miles, you said you've been offering a few hugs to, uh, to, to BBC types around the, uh, around the building today. Just tell me, what, what has been the move? What are they sort of telling you? Well, uh, I, I think it has rocked, these past couple of weeks, has rocked the BBC to its very core. I mean, the Savile situation in itself was a terrible thing, and it's, I think... Um, quite palpably changed the atmosphere for a lot of people working within the BBC. The Newsnight scenario has compounded that. Um, I spoke earlier of people being shell-shocked. I think people want leadership, you know, and talking to people on the ground here at the radio festival and, and, and people at the BBC, they want leadership. They want clear, decisive leadership um, that can take and regain um, the BBC's place, particularly in terms of, of, of the trust that licence fee payers and the audience has had for the BBC in the past. Um, uh, Paul alluded it to it earlier on. I think that most people working currently in the BBC see this as the far greater than Hutton, um, as something that, that is the biggest crisis that the BBC has ever faced. And they're working in amongst it right now. Yeah, I mean, we used to say you know, in the BBC that uh, great programmes are made by producers and presenters despite the management. Uh, the management have now got to absolutely show leadership, as Mod says, and I think timing's very important. It is critical that a new DG is in place well before Christmas and can announce his or her plans to restructure and to move on very, very fast. What you don't want is this lingering, either for the public or for the staff. And as Mod says, I've had the same sort of conversations, great people feeling very nervous. It's very important that the uh, staff are failed uh, felt to be emboldened and happy and comfortable so they can make what we want, which is programmes of ambition at the BBC. Yeah. 2012, the best of years and the worst of years. 
for the BBC. I mean, you know, how what quickly the uh, the glory of the Olympics has faded, faded and it was long. an amazing achievement by the BBC. Great show. Away from the drama of the BBC, there's another theme emerging here in Salford this week, something that Billy Bragg hinted at during his John Peel lecture. Here he is reminding people of how chart topper Jake Bug, yes, I know him as well as you do, almost didn't make it out of his hometown of Nottingham. Now, Jake had been doing shows for a while around his home in Nottingham. He was 16 years old. And in late 2010, he came to the attention of his local radio stations. Trent FM put him on their Knots Unsigned program, which was aimed at getting someone from Nottingham to the top of the charts. It's hosted by a guy named Mark Dell. He must be feeling pretty pleased with himself now. Uh, but unfortunately for Jake and for Mark and for people in Nottingham, within a month of his appearance in 2010, Trent FM was absorbed into the Capital FM network and the Knots Unsigned initiative unfortunately closed down. And it was something record producer Pete Waterman broached when he spoke to Media Talk a little earlier. The radio industry is in great danger of imploding on itself. You know, we set up these stations to be independents and they're not becoming... I mean, they're being gobbled up by multinationals and we're losing the independent radio stations. And without independent radio stations, it doesn't work because we become one big conglomerate. And, you know, we, we take creativity out. When one programme director can run a whole network of radio stations, he becomes more powerful than the music. I think that to lose all the independent commercial stations is a tragedy. I think because the platforms have become so varied now and internet radio and it's more fragmented, I sort of get a sense of some kind of adventurous spirit in commercial radio, though maybe not the major players and the main networks, mainly because, of course, that, you know, advertising has completely died. So they've got to do something else to survive. That was Mark Radcliffe and before that, Pete Waterman. So, Paul, this is global radio. They nearly killed Jake Bug. <laughs> Well, um, as a result of Global taking over Trent FM, the local programme supporting Nottingham bands disappeared, and that was, that was the issue. Um, I think mo most important to focus here is to remember that the reason that we now have got these quasi-national networks of, of capital um, and heart and presumably smooth when it's subsumed into Global, which is going to happen at some point, is because of the licensing regime. If you go back 10, 15 years, there were two or three commercial stations in every market, and then more FM frequency was allocated to the regulator, and they had a very clear choice. Either launch two national commercial stations to rival Radio 1 and Radio 2, or launch more regional and local stations. And there were those in the industry, myself included, who felt the right approach was to go for the national stations. But that was not the way the regulator went. They went for more regional stations. They did so launching more stations into markets. And um, what happened at the same time was that the advertiser pound did not grow. You know, there'd been growth of radio advertising from 2% to 3% to 4% of total display. And the assumption was that would continue. It did not continue. And if you look at the amount of money uh, brought in per listener now, in commercial radio compared to five years ago it's much less so what happened was more stations less money coming in and surprise surprise these guys couldn't make money so they started networking started saving money and the result of all that is the regional networks we now have that's the genesis of it do you think the the, the network stations that we have today are, are, are weaker or sort of a 
there are patchwork of stations which, which aren't uh, maybe as strong as uh, national stations that have been licensed from the off as you wanted. Well, I think if you had national stations from the start, they would have been stronger than those networks that have been put together. But I think Global are doing a pretty good job of what they're doing. I mean, Global are pretty clear. You know, we're not going to support local initiatives in the market. We are going to have local information, which is delivered electronically using technology, which is now possible. But we're creating brands. We're creating brands that are going to attract uh, advertisers and we're going to build brands that are going to become known nationally and compete with Radio 1 and Radio 2. The BBC have got phenomenal networks. You know, Radio 1 and Radio 2 are great radio stations and commercial radio needs to compete and that's what Capital and Heart are and that's why Global's doing it. So the strategy's right. Unfortunately, uh, the Jake Bugs will have to find their promotion elsewhere, unfortunately. Well, Moz, TalkSport is part of UTV and UTV has local stations in, uh, in um, the UK and, uh, and Northern Ireland. What's, what's your take on the local radio market? Well, it's tough. And, and you know, I, I agree with Paul on a lot of what Paul has said on, on, in that regard. But I do think there's an opportunity. There's a little shard of light coming through there. That if, if you, and we both start in local radio, yeah. I on the BBC and you in, in commentary. Radio in uh, the North Absolutely. Um, is, is that a local service still has a value, I think. If you go for it, you invest in it, you talk to the audience in the way that they want to be talked to, you have local talent that you develop on air that can talk to an audience about the streets they grew up in, about where they're going that night for a pint, etc. I think that that type of content still has a place in the radio landscape if it's invested in, loved and nurtured. And at UTV, um, we have this thing with our ILRs, be proud to be local, really work at that. Be vigorous about that because the rest of the market is moving away from that and that potentially could be a real point of difference for you. But Paul, how do other local radio groups compete with a, a, a company the size of Global, which is going to get even bigger, presumably, next year when the Competition Commission waves through the purchase of uh, GMG Radio? Well, I think Moz has just answered the question. I think either you go for big brands that actually compete on a national scale, or you go local, 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 and super local. And you know what? If you're local, people are going to forgive you for maybe not being as slick and maybe having you know, a few lumps and bumps in the output. What matters is, are you relevant? Are you talking about what's happening in that patch? What doesn't work is the middle ground where you're sort of semi-local, you're doing a bit of local, but you're not really local. You're trying to be big, but you're not. Either be super local or go for a big brand. If you do that, both can exist and both will survive, I think. Critics say Global has sort of killed off local radio, but uh, Stephen Myron, the chief executive here today, said, uh, no, 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 what we do with our, our national brands, we sort of deliver local radio nationally, or uh, maybe it was delivering national radio locally. Anyway, one of the two, he says that it, there, there are still local elements to it, but I mean, what's the truth? No, Stephen is fudging it. That's absolutely not true, and if he, if he was honest, he'd love to lose all the local completely, and there's nothing wrong with that. What they want to do is create national brands from a network of local stations. That's the truth of it, and there's nothing wrong with that strategy, but he should be honest about it. It. I completely agree. That's that's what about the, Richard Park's programming strategy, Stephen Myron's com, uh, commercial strategy is based on yeah. entirely that. And I, I would agree with Paul. You know that is a strategy. It works. It helps radio survive. It does. It does provide a product nationally and and very good ones in many cases. But it's certainly not. Um, it's certainly not a local service in those areas. You know what's also important. I mean, we heard David Joseph of Universal Music talking about this just now as well. What it means is that Capital has got real clout when it comes to artists and music. You need to have someone who's going to compete with Radio 1, who's going to get the exclusives, going to get the artists on there and value being on the Capital playlist and it gets that from being at scale. Capital put together a fantastic television advert with a whole bunch of really big top-notch artists endorsing the station when they move to Capital, to the Capital Network. You'd never get that as a local station. So Capital can truly bring scale and quality uh, and talent of a, of a real pedigree which they couldn't do as a local station, as a network. Yeah. Commercially though, which this thing's always boiled down 
down to, you might argue, as we do and others, that you can have too much of the cake and you can command too much of the cake. And with that strength and hours, particularly going to the market and dictating price, isn't necessarily a good thing for choice, isn't necessarily a good thing for commercial radio as a whole, because there's only a certain amount of this pie, which we're all fighting very hard um, to take a hold of in whatever way we are. Um, and um, we need to survive within it. And I think if they're too dominant, it actually harms radio as a whole. And we had the curious case, Paul, where um, Stephen Myron was accusing Radio 1 of being too mainstream. He dubbed it Radio 1 Direction. Um, but at the same time, David Joseph, who you mentioned earlier for Universal Music, called on commercial radio stations such as Capital to take, to take more risks. He said that they, they waited for songs to be hits before they put them on, put, before they put them on the air. Indeed, and in fact uh, looked at some of the artists, the new British artists that are actually um, emerging and are selling lots of uh, albums and, and singles and downloads and aren't getting carried by commercial radio. I think Radio 1 is changing its uh, strategy. Radio 1 is going younger uh, rightly so you know the appointment of Grimmy is you know part of that uh, the moving uh, um, of drive time for Scott Mills is part of that you know Radio 1 is repositioning itself and Radio 1 needs to continue to be a public service station that does take risks um, I don't think Radio 1 is too mainstream but I think it's right the commercial radio keeps saying it to make sure Radio 1 stays as a public service station supporting new British music so you are you Jake Bug chaps or you're you more Billy Bragg I thought he or was neither. fantastic. I thought Jake was great. I thought that uh, the clip we saw of him playing an acoustic set was just fantastic. Amazing voice. Uh, Billy Bragg is more my era because obviously you know I'm old now. But I, I did, can speak I for did, it all there. Paul, I yeah. did love. I did love Billy Bragg. You know, and I mean he he had some lovely quotes. Like he described John Peel as a, a fabulous mix of misfit music. But he said his advice to radio programmers was get the balance right between the comfort of the mainstream and the shock of the new. I think that's a fantastic quote. We were talking about it earlier on in one of the other sessions, is that I think sometimes with, with music radio, the talk element, the actual personality of radio um, is, is missing. And so we talk about these great iconic names like John Peel, I, I worry sometimes where in, in, in these local or regional markets we're getting that fresh talent from. We often say it, it's an old, tired argument, but it's still irrelevant today as it was last year and the year before that, that, you know, uh, rigid formats don't necessarily allow us to grow and train and build personalities for radio. Well, maybe I can do a quick plug for the Radio Academy 30 Under 30, which I, I organise for them. We've had some amazing people write in. These are people under 30 doing incredible things in radio. What's extraordinary is there are young people who really want to be in this business, who love it, who are passionate about it. I'd like to encourage more presenters to go for the 30-30 class of 2013 who might be that new talent that Moz is talking about. Is there any chance of a 40 over 40? Because if there is, I'd like to put myself <laughs> forward. Uh, John, I'm sure that you'd be top of that 40 over 40, so we don't need to do it anyway. Well, you're very kind. You're very kind. Well, we've touched on the BBC. We've touched on local radio. We've talked a bit about David Joseph. Just finally, chaps, any other sort of um, emerging themes from the festival floor? I thought the Twitter session was really interesting, and, and I thought there's some fantastic examples of how to use Twitter to enhance your radio programming. I think Twitter was described as the second screen for radio, and I thought that was absolutely right. Although Isn't I am the first screen? I am a bit concerned though that everybody seems to say the, the big panacea for Twitter is to get Justin Bieber to tweet for you. <laughs> right. <laughs> Maybe. No, I think, I think the Twitter thing is what everyone's talking about because I think we in radio are all using it. Um, we have a deal with Twitter in the sense that they're, they're taking some of our international commentary and streaming it um, through their services. And the fact, and, and listening to Fru, Fru Hazlitt talk earlier on, I thought she was very, very good, very entertaining, but hit a few home truths. 
But the fact that actually our product now, in terms of radio shows and radio, are 24-hour experiences for the listener because they are tweeting about it in terms of my presenters. They're having discussions and arguments uh, in social networking sphere well before they get to air. Um, and that's something that we, I think is a real opportunity for us. It's not a threat. It doesn't threaten radio. I think if we embrace it, we can make that work for audiences and we can make it work commercially as well. We'll find a way of making money out of it. Yeah. The other one was Spotify, which is very interesting. And I think the, the Spotify exec wasn't completely honest with us uh, because Spotify clearly is a challenge to radio but again to quote Billy Bragg again you know he said the, the risk of Spotify is that you'll never ever be exposed to music you don't like and I think what's interesting for me is that this idea of music curation and the role of the DJ as someone who exposes you to new music loves what they play you know is passionate about it whether it's Jamie Cullum or it's Zane Lowe uh, playing great music and enthusing about it is actually the real role of radio and music radio and that doesn't go away despite all the new technology that is still the core of music radio and I think if we forget that we forget a key attribute of radio yeah, the era of self-editing you're editing for yourself therefore you will never challenge yourself we need to be challenged by people completely agree with Paul ok well on that upbeat note I think uh, Paul Robinson and Mosdi thank you very much I'm joined now by Miranda Sawyer, writer, broadcaster, and also, of course, observer, radio reviewer. Um, hello, hello, very nice. To, thanks for joining us. That's all right. It's a pleasure. Uh, now, we touched on Billy Bragg earlier with some of our other podcast panellists, but you have a slightly different take to what we heard from, uh, from Paul Robinson and, and Moz D. Okay, well, obviously I love Billy Bragg. You would have to have a heart of stone not to love Billy Bragg. And I liked his talk, but I thought he was wrong, essentially. So what he was saying, one of the thrusts of his talk was he was saying that working class people don't make protest songs and they don't get to number one. And I would say that, particularly in the last couple of years, actually quite a lot of working class people from particularly England have got to, to number one. So I'm thinking Dizzy Rascal, Wiley, Plan B. You know, I mean, actually, you could even say N-dubs, you know, there's a lot of people that have end-ups are not political, I would hate to say. But, um, but, you know, a lot of people actually have been making the music that they want to make and getting to number one. I just think they're not making folk music, which is possibly why he hasn't heard of them. But to say, you know, Plan B made an absolutely amazing protest song that went straight to number one. It's just that Billy Bragg doesn't listen to kind of dance music. So I think he was slightly off the mark. I'm not saying that it isn't a valid point or maybe more people could, you know, could do it, but I think he's, he's slightly wrong, really. And the other thing that I would say about his talk because I wondered this is not a criticism of this talk it's just something that made me think about it about the role of the music press so if you think about punk music Britpop rave kind of movements they tend to have had uh, quite strong writing around them so, you know, the reason why Manchester is still considered to be a musical mecca is because of the, it's pretty much the work, single-handedly, the works of Paul Morley, you know. I mean, that is why people still think it's really amazing. And you, if you don't have very, very strong writers writing about a scene, it kind of falls away. So grime was an incredibly important scene within Britain and actually went on to, to influence America. But you didn't really have high-profile grime writers. So it was never really regarded in the same way that rave is. And you could argue also that there's a mild you know mild racism involved in that that perhaps there's not so many uh, people who are looking to black music to write about it but you know I just think if you don't have a really strong music press it's very hard to get that kind of feeling of um, we're all in this together there's something actually happening and and the music press isn't strong anymore so it's hard for it to happen 
I was going to say, yeah, what do you make of the state of the music press at the minute? I mean, uh, Word magazine, which was a, a, a regular, you know, a pl- regular Plunkett subscription in the, in the Plunkett household, has uh, now died a death. And, you know, it, it's it, NME sales still falling. Uh, Q magazine, his sales are in the doldrums, although it's edited by a former Word man now, Andrew Harrison. Yeah. What, what are, your, are, are, you optimi- are you in any sense optimistic about the future of the, the, the music press? Well, I still think it's like anything. It's, it's not the state of the music press. It's the state of the press, isn't it? I mean, you know, the, that is what everybody is worried about. It's whether everybody still anybody still wants a kind of uh, something physical to hold. And if you can do a really brilliant kind of. Uh, iPad offering I think that you perhaps have a future if you can do it in lots of different ways little films coming up I think you know look at the, the way the Guardian has to approach things you know it has it has films it has lots of different ways of approaching it and I think that if the music press does it in that way then yes they have a chance but you know I think of things like the quietus you know I mean it's not quite my cup of tea it's a little bit too earnest but it's incredibly well followed really well respected um, and that is that is a, a kind of proper music website that will work and Q magazine under the kind of helm of Andrew Harrison and he is a brilliant editor you know without a doubt that bloke is a, some kind of weird genius and if he can't save it then the music press can't be saved but I think he can save it well, at the risk of a smashy and nicey style link uh, another man who's thinking about iPads and second screens <laughs> is Mr Ben Cooper yes. controller of Radio 1 and you've just come off stage to, uh, to chat to him about his uh, well, his plans for making the stage uh, making the station indeed and possibly the stage uh, a bit younger uh, what, what did you make of what he had to say well it's interesting I mean he's I think he's a, he knows what he's doing. I think that all the changes he's done in terms of the shed, schedule, or do we say schedule, so, you know, so far in terms of who the people that he's brought onto Radio 1 and the people that he's kind of edged out are correct. You know, the fact that Vernon Kay was still on Radio 1 on a Saturday morning I thought was kind of weird. You know, he's nearly as old as me. But it was like, also sounded like, it kind of sounded like loaded or something. It was so old-fashioned, you know. And so to have new people on, I think he's made the right moves. I think he's made the right move with Grimmy on uh, at the breakfast show. He's made some very interesting moves on Sunday night. So I think broadly he's doing a really good thing. In terms of interviewing him on stage, he's a BBC man, you know, so he, uh, he presents a very slick, I thought his presentation was amazingly slick and, and quite interesting in, in the way that uh, what he talked about was the way that people access radio during the day. So they use a smartphone when they first get up, then they switch the telly on, then when they get to work, they're, they're on the computer. When they travel to and from work, they use their smartphones again, they watch telly in the evening or go on the computer, and then they use the smartphones just to check the Twitter feed right at the end. And I think that that is quite an interesting thing to... N- to know about and to work with so I think that he pretty much I mean everything he said I thought was pretty impressive in terms of interviewing on stage I tried to dig him out a bit because that's your job but you know he knows what he's doing he's hard to dig out (laughs) I tried my best I told him I thought the chart show was rubbish but you know he came back he knows what he's doing but I do think there's a, a point that I tried to make to him which I genuinely believe which is the idea of uh listening to radio in terms of age or, or approaching music uh, in terms of age is completely wrong. If you are of a particular ilk, and this is not just music, this is culture in general, you can't change. You know, I cannot be interested in a blockbuster, you know, a film blockbuster. I just don't care. I don't care about films like that, and you can't change me, you know, no matter how old I get. I can't be interested in them. I don't care about rom-coms. It doesn't make any difference. My taste... It develops, but it's essentially the same taste. I have, in inverted commas, alternative taste. And I have, I'm also interested in dance music. Those are the things that I like. So I am very likely to listen to Radio 1, particularly in the evenings. And you can't kind of make me switch off because I'm old. In the same way that you can't make Zane Lowe stop liking indie music because he's in his 40s. Or, you know, 
<laughs> you know, Tim Westwood, who is, God knows what, how old Tim Westwood is, or Annie Nightingale. You can't tell them to stop liking music because they've got old. And I think that approach, oh, it has to be about, you know, if Radio 1 is failing, if the average listenership is 33, it's ridiculous because it's not how people listen to music. But that's not his fault. That's the BBC Trust's fault. He has to deal with that. But I think it's wrong. And a big part of his strategy is, of course, Nick Grimshaw uh, on at breakfast, taken over from Chris Moyles. And it was interesting, he said, well, yeah, yeah, plenty to say, but he said it was only been in the last week or so, this is Grimshaw speaking, that um, he's kind of really felt comfortable at breakfast. And then, until then, he kind of felt, well, it's, he felt the pressure. Yeah, I know, and he's an incredibly relaxed performer, Nick, I think. He's like a very natural, you know, and when I heard, the first time I heard him, obviously, was on uh, evening radio and Radio 1, and I was kind of like, who's he? He's kind of amazing, you know, because he was so happy to be on the mic it was so relaxed he had such personality he wasn't worried he wasn't kind of a DJ he was really really brilliant and I think that it is quite interesting to even somebody as relaxed as that who opened you know his very first radio on breakfast show saying well it's just kind of talking between records you know was feeling the pressure because it was a weird gig you know everybody listens really quite hard for the first few few uh, kind of times that you're on and then now I think he feels that people maybe you know they listen if they want to or they don't if they don't and it's okay you know so that means that he can be relaxed but I think he's really brilliant and that's why I think that Ben's got a problem because I'm going to start listening to the radio to the breakfast show in the morning whereas I didn't like Moyles so you know you'll get all the kind of like oh isn't he lovely the mummies of my age oh look isn't he lovely that lovely young man from up north oh I do like him and they'll get you know and the music's better so he's got a problem I think I'd re- I genuinely think it might go up I don't know although you know, they did say that every time they do a little kind of clip or something, you know, a little video clip, the people who access it are kind of 15-year-olds, rather than with Moyles, it was older kind of, in inverted commas, white van man kind of uh, accessing it. So I think they think they're onto a winner. Okay. Well, Miranda Sawyer, thank you very much. Well, that's it. Another radio festival draws to a close. I think it's my 15th, if I remember rightly. My thanks to all our panellists, who included Paul Robinson, Moz D, and of course, Miranda Sawyer. Catch up with all the festival news at mediaguardian.co.uk, where you'll find all the latest BBC developments, and of course, well, all industry news, frankly. Media Talk was produced by Matt Hill, and I'm John Plunkett. We're off to catch our train. Thanks for listening. For more great downloads, go to guardian.co.uk forward slash audio. The Guardian Masterclasses are now accessible as video downloads and streams. For our podcast listeners, we have a special offer on the great science writer Tim Radford's Masterclass. Normally £3 to stream or £5 to download. We are offering 10% off and all you have to do is use our podcast listeners discount code. Science save, all one word. And check out all our Guardian Masterclasses at guardian.co.uk.